Good morning. Let's open with a brief word of prayer. Father, I, just, I pray that you would be with us today, that the words that I speak would be the words that you would have me to speak, and that we would be receptive to what you would have to speak through your text today. In Jesus' name, amen. What's your earliest memory of church? For those of you who grew up going to church every Sunday, we likely have no memory of not going to church. But if we were to take a poll of a thousand Christians who grew up in church, I'd imagine that the earliest memories are the songs, or flannel graph, but the songs, so many songs. Among them, it would probably be a dead heat for the top, for the top spot between two songs in particular. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Or this one. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. For the Bible tells me so. Just reading the lyrics, I can hear the off-key and enthusiastic cacophony of my seven-year-old self belting it out like I owned the place. And I'd imagine that many of you sang along in your heads as I read the lyrics out loud, and some of you may have been a little bit irritated that I didn't sing the lyrics. But where? Where does it say this? That Jesus loves the So this... This occurs immediately after Jesus tells his disciples that to be first, they must become servants. But not just the servants of some, the powerful, those who can benefit them, but servants of all, even those from whom they will garner absolutely no benefit, those who bring absolutely nothing to the table. Five verses later, Jesus boldly declares that children are to be protected. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around him and he were thrown into the sea. Quite literally, hell will be paid to those who cause a child to fall away from the faith or stumble through either words, deeds, or example. It would be better for us to be drowned in the sea than for us to stand before the righteous judge on that day. Children are not seen as a burden to be born and endured, rather a charge to be valued and protected. In today's text, we see that not only are the lowly, lowliest among us to be attended to and protected, but they're to be given access to the Savior. This absolutely flies in the face of the culture of the day. Children were regarded as a burden, a net drain, almost parasitic. In a letter that's been found, that's been dated to June 1 BC, a Greek Egyptian by the name of Hilarion had written to his sister these words, 
I ask you and entreat you, take care of the child, and if I receive my pay soon, I will send it up to you. Okay, you might say. He's talking about taking care of children. We're with you so far. But Hilarion continues, above all, if you bear a child and it is male, let it be. If it is female, cast it out. Cast it out is a fancy turn of phrase that means to expose it. Rid yourself of the child. Bring it to the wilderness and leave it. Unprotected, uncared for, unloved. Often the fate of children who were cast out was death. Of those that didn't die, the boys were often raised to fight as gladiators, trained to kill or be killed. Girls would often be taken and forced into prostitution, feeding the perverse predilections of the day, and the boys too sometimes. The fortunate ones would be taken and sold into slavery. You might say, those were pagans. Of course those godless heathens didn't value children. The Jews wouldn't do that. Well, to an extent, you'd be correct. Jews generally frowned on the practice of exposure, although some did practice it. But in first century Jewish culture, children were considered a net drain on society. They did not contribute financially. They could not support a home. They required supervision. They were distractions. They were unimportant. They were nobody. Generally, they were considered heathen until they received the law of Moses at age 13. And the attitude then was that children were to be tolerated until they received the law, at which point they could be held accountable. The condition of children in the vulnerable improved dramatically after Christ. The first orphanages in the Roman Empire started less than 70 years after Christianity became the imperial religion. In fact, the first foundling hospitals were started by the church. What changed? What fundamentally upended the order of society? Against this backdrop, the events of today's text unfold. When the disciples adopt the attitude of what in the world is all of this about? We don't have time for your kids. We've got more important things to do, you know, Kingdom stuff, like worship and prayer and the word of God. Get your kids out of here. Jesus makes the pronouncement, let the children come to me. If we take from today's text that Jesus cares about children as the children's song goes, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, we would not be wrong. But if we stopped there, we would miss the greater truth in the text of what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. What it takes to transform from godless heathens into faithful children. Let's turn to our text today. Our text today comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. That's my bad. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, 
Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Our text today opens with the statement, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. The Greek here may be better understood as they were trying to bring the children to him, but they were not yet successful. We, fi- we very quickly find out why they, who are not named, were not successful. And the disciples rebuked them. Presumably, they are the crowds that we see back in 10.1 when Jesus enters the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and the crowds start gathering. The word used here for children does not refer to family relationships, so we can't necessarily assume that these are the children of the people bringing them. Rather, it's an age or a social status. They were young. In fact, Luke's account uses the word infants to describe them. They were insignificant. They were unimportant. We are told that they want Jesus to touch the children. Now, this is more than a handshake or a head pat, you know, they're there. Jesus had already done many things through the laying on of hands. Great healings and blessings. They wanted that. Blessings from Jesus. And in fact, the parallel account in Matthew 19, 13 explicitly stated that the people wanted Jesus to bless the children. It was a common practice of the day for parents to take their children to be blessed by prominent rabbis. This is no different. And in fact, the blessing pronounced by the rabbis then has been preserved, and it's the same blessing that rabbis pronounce today, which is the same blessing that Jacob, who was called Israel at that time, pronounced in Genesis 48.20. To the sons of Joseph, Jacob said, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. The rabbinic blessing then concluded with the high priestly blessing. May God bless you and keep you. May God shine his light on you and be gracious to you. May God turn toward you and grant you peace. We see this recorded all throughout the New Testament, early era Judaic history, that this was the blessing that the rabbis pronounced when they were brought children. We'll come back to that later. We saw in in verse 10 in this chapter that Jesus and his disciples retreated into a house where Jesus then taught the disciples more in depth than what he taught the crowds. Certainly, this is not the first time this has occurred in Mark. In 135, we see Jesus go to a desolate place to pray, but the crowds seek him out there. In 3.7, as Jesus withdraws with his disciples, the crowds again follow him. And in 7.24, Jesus explicitly tried to remain hidden in the region of Tyre. But the crowds found him once again. 
Why should today be any different? Jesus tries to be alone with his disciples, but the crowds have different plans. The people come to the house where Jesus and his disciples were, and they try and try and try again to bring the children to Jesus that he might bless them. Yet, we see the disciples have different plans. The disciples rebuked them. It's almost as if the disciples say, oh yeah, you want to get to him? You got to go through us. And to quote a favorable Tolkien character, you shall not pass. We're not told in the text that the, the disciples' motivations. Maybe the disciples are tired. Maybe they're jealously guarding their special time with the master. Maybe they're in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. Jesus has started on his long trek to, to, to Jerusalem that would ultimately culminate with his crucifixion. Maybe they're in a hurry to get to Jerusalem and the crowds are just slowing them down. Maybe. I think, however, one of our previous texts that we've read provides a better answer. In Mark 10.38, we saw that the disciples got very bent out of shape, maybe even indignant that someone was performing miraculous deeds in Jesus' name, but they were not one of them. That is, they're in crowd. They weren't the inner circle. We saw in that text that Jesus corrected their wrongness. He told them, do not stop him. If he's not against us, he's for us. Essentially, Jesus is telling them that they do not have the right to determine who can act in his name. He has that right. They do not. We have a well-established track record of the already of the disciples being a bit slow on the uptake. So here we are, one chapter later, and the disciples are right back at it, playing gatekeeper. Who can get to Jesus? The ones that we say can get to Jesus. And not only are they trying to act as gatekeeper, they are rebuking the lowliest and most vulnerable in society. It's telling that they that they were bringing the children. But in Jesus' rebuke, he doesn't say, let them bring the children to me. He says, let the children come to me. The grand irony is that in, is, this is that the disciples are fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, and associates of sinners. They would not long ago have been themselves considered the dregs of society burdens, and undesirable. They owe everything they presently have to Jesus. Their response to this? They quickly forgot it. Their response is, we're going to ration this out to those whom we who we determine are worthy. In light of Jesus' recent teaching about welcoming children, and not causing one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, and Jesus' rebuke of the disciples' arrogance, the disciples' response should be shocking, appalling even. And yet, it is completely predictable in light of their persistent failure to understand Jesus, his purpose, and the nature of the kingdom of God. 
The disciples' pride, exclusivity, and lack of discernment is at issue here. And as they are about to find out, that's not how the kingdom of God works. That's not how it works at all. The most insignificant and vulnerable matter to Jesus. And they should matter to us as well. In their rebuke to the children, the disciples arouse a response from Jesus that is only recorded here. He responded with indignance. This should be differentiated from other negative emotions. This isn't a response to something personal. This isn't an unhinged emotional response. This is a deep grief stemming from a justified offense. The disciples have so affronted the kingdom order that Jesus' response is indignance. The disciples were not just in error. They were in opposition. We see similar responses from Jesus when he's responding to Peter back in chapter 8 when he says, get behind me, Satan. And to the Pharisees in chapter 3. However, only here is this word overtly used to describe Jesus' mindset. And only here is it used in Jesus' mindset toward the disciples. As the disciples rebuked them, Jesus openly rebukes the disciples. Jesus rebukes them with an emphatic double command. First, let them come to me, followed by, do not stop them. In no uncertain terms, the disciples were to permit the children to come to Jesus without delay and without impediment. Stop forbidding them is the same imperative that was given to the disciples who were trying to stop the exorcist one chapter ago. Right alongside the previous passage about welcoming children. Do the children belong to the same, to the same class of children who believe in him, as we're, we're told in 942? You know, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin? Possibly. Again, the word used of children here is the same. It doesn't imply any particular familial relationship to the one who brought them. Rather, their smallness and their insignificance. The relationship of the children to the people that brought them simply isn't Mark's concern here. They are societally insignificant, which is Mark's concern here. They are the leeches of society, and that society will pour more into them than they can ever repay at this particular age. Jesus commands them to come anyway. In a day in which rabbis measured their own importance based on their particular status and influence within society, they would not deign to associate with anyone who could not benefit them. And yet Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Why? Because to such belongs the kingdom of God. What? If the disciples weren't getting it before, they must really be thinking that the cheese has fully slipped off Jesus' cracker here. We're talking about a kingdom 
you know, thrones, crowns, armies, that stuff. We don't know what you're talking about. Just two chapters ago, Peter was ready to raise a conquering army. Little children were not the army of which he was thinking. How can the kingdom of God belong to such as these? Here, we begin to see that the kingdom of God looks nothing like any kingdom that we've ever seen. I would like to note here, this passage is often used by some to justify the practice of infant baptism. First off, the concept of baptism is nowhere in view here. Second, in verse 14, Jesus has moved directly about, from talking about children primarily to talking about those who are like children. It's a, the such, such as these, it's a comparative word. It means that those who are like this, as in there's something, some quality about how children receive things that allows one to receive the kingdom. This is not to say that children are unable to exercise faith. In fact, quite the opposite, as we saw in 942. But there's something about the faith of a child that's qualitatively distinct from that of an adult. That's what's in view here. So the reason for his command is because to such belong the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom belongs to them, not in a sense of exclusive ownership since it's God's kingdom. Rather, it belongs to them because they have a rightful share in it. We see Jesus make pronouncements elsewhere about to whom belongs the kingdom. If we, if we go over to Matthew's gospel, in the section of the Beatitudes, we see blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who recognize they're in needs of God's help and are so bankrupt that they fully understand that they bring nothing to the table. To them belongs the kingdom. Two verses later in 5.5, 5, Jesus declares, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those who do not assert their own position, rather they recognize who they are in comparison to who God is. They shall share in the inheritance. Remember the songs earlier? Some of you may still be singing them. What about this one? My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the valleys are his, the stars are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. As children, we look up to our parents. They're superheroes. They can do anything. But as we grow older, we see the flaws and the weaknesses. We become cynical. And our faith gives way to doubt. Our assurance to skepticism. Our parents seem a little less big. Certainly no longer strong and mighty. And we see a lot they cannot do. To approach the kingdom as a child does means to never stop being in awe of the king. To drive home the point that he makes in verse 14, that to such belong the kingdom of God. Jesus doubles down in verse 15. He opens with an emphatic, his emphatic pronouncement with, 
Truly, I say to you. It's a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word, Amen. In Hebrew, this word occurs at the end of a pronouncement to confirm its validity. Usually after an appeal to multiple authorities, I've made my argument, Amen, it's confirmed. The word literally means it's confirmed or it's verified. Jesus' use at the beginning of his pronouncement is unprecedented in Scripture, and it serves to emphasize his unique authority in the pronouncement. It is confirmed simply because he said it. Jewish rabbis tended to appeal to their predecessors and other rabbis for their pronouncements. Jesus appealed to his own authority. The closest Old Testament parallel to this statement is, thus says the Lord. This statement would have been completely counterintuitive and shocking. But it is the essence of the gospel. What Jesus is saying is no mere teaching. It is divine revelation of those who will receive the kingdom from the king himself. The king is declaring who will receive it. Jesus then moves into the pronouncement himself, itself. The English doesn't adequately render the power of this statement. The Greek here is the most emphatic type of negative statement that exists in the entire Greek language. Essentially it is, if you do not now receive the kingdom as a child receives something, there is absolutely no way you will ever receive it in the future. The king has spoken, and it is established and irrefutable fact. Failure to submit to the kingdom rule now as a child, faithfully without hesitation, fully reliant on God, means you will have no share in the kingdom blessings later when the fullness of the kingdom arrives. William Hendrickson in his commentary on this particular section of Mark, shares an anecdote about gold pieces piled up outside on a windowsill. Take one, the sign, said the sign. All day long, people passed by, thinking, this fellow can't fool me. Evening fell and the owner was about to remove the pile that was still there. But just before he did, a child came by, read the sign, and calmly, without the least hesitancy, took one. To receive something like a child means with the trusting simplicity and unassuming humility that the giver means exactly what he says. There's also the matter of the already and not yet nature of the kingdom here. Those who do not receive the kingdom now as a child does will not enter into, into it in the future. The kingdom is imminent. One of the first pronouncements of Jesus in the, in the entire gospel of Mark, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. We have seen the signs. The fullness will not be fully realized until the future. We have faith that what we have received now will be realized at Christ's return. Receiving the kingdom as a child receives it means submitting to its rule. 
What else can a weak and lowly child do? Humble submission and simple obedience. To receive the kingdom as a child means to set aside the pursuit of significance according to the world's standards and to come to God with humility and faith and recognition of one's own helplessness. This comports well with what's going to come next in 17 through 31 in the encounter with the rich young man. We're not to receive the kingdom as a conquering army receives it, in power and might, confident in our own ability to control it, glorying in what we have brought to the table. Rather, we are to receive the kingdom as the humble conquered, bereft of power and dignity, wholly trusting the goodness and blessings of our benevolent king. We will not assimilate the kingdom, rather we will be assimilated into the kingdom emptied of self. This truth of the nature of those who will enter the kingdom sets up the next encounter. As if to demonstrate the point that Jesus just made, as Jesus and the disciples leave, they encounter the rich man. He asks what he must do to inherit the kingdom, that is, or to inherit eternal life, that is, to receive the kingdom. Jesus starts by telling him to submit to its rule. The rich man proudly declares that he's done that. Jesus then drops the hammer and tells him, go sell all you have and come follow me. Essentially, go and empty yourself of all that you are and come to me, not as a, risk, not as a rich man grasping his riches, but as a beggar, open-handed and dependent on what I will give you. The only way to receive the kingdom of God is as a humble beggar, a child. It is a gift to be received from God, not a possession that we can purchase. To quote Jonathan Edwards, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. How we receive the kingdom of God matters to Jesus. And it should matter to us as well. After Jesus made his truly earth-shattering proclamation about what it takes to receive the kingdom in a further and visible rebuke to the disciples, he picked up the children one by one, embraced them, and proceeded to bless them. Remember the rabbinic blessing we touched on earlier? This is where it becomes of supreme importance. To fully understand this as more than just saying nice things, well wishes and big hopes about the children, we must turn to Genesis 48. To summarize, that, to summarize what was going on there, Israel was dying. Joseph had heard about his father dying. So he hurried to his father with his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph brought his sons to Israel, as they did with the children in our text today in verse 13. And as Israel laid his hands upon the, jo upon the boys, Joseph rebuked him. You, you're mixing it up. Your hands are on the wrong boys. You got it backward. 
similarly to what the disciples did in 1013 in rebuking the people bringing them. This resulted in a correction from Israel as Jesus corrected the disciples in 14 of essentially, I know what I'm doing here. This culminated in Israel making a pronouncement that the, about the reversed order that upended the way that things were done, that the younger will be greater than the elder. A pronouncement akin to what Jesus made in 1015, and it ended with a blessing of the sons, as Jesus' blessing of the children in 1016. The emphasis in this episode of Genesis is not just that they were blessed, though. Because, as we would see in 49, Israel blessed all of his sons. But it's that immediately prior to this, in, in Genesis 48:5, Israel declared, Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. In them let my name be carried on. The names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Joseph's sons weren't just blessed. They were adopted into sonship. The truly astonishing part of this episode in Mark is not just that Jesus wants these children to come to him, the most insignificant, the lowliest in society, but it's that he assigns membership in God's kingdom to them, confirming their faith that he referenced in 942. The word used here in Jesus' blessing is not just the normal word for blessed, the word occurs only here in the New Testament. It is emphatic. And the, the emphasis of the word isn't just that this is some extra special blessing that's being given. Rather, the emphasis is on Jesus' authority to give the blessing. Others may say kind wishes for a child, but Jesus has the authority to make it happen. Others in an emphatic rebuke to the disciples, Jesus stresses his authority to elevate even children to heirs of the kingdom. Whereas they, are only bringing the, whereas they were only bringing the children that Jesus might bless them rabbinically, instead, Jesus embraces them in a dramatic approval. In contrast to the disciples' exclusion, Jesus warmly welcomes the children embracing them, then speaking the blessing while laying hands on them. Jesus' laying on of hands is not just a liturgical ritual, rather it's an identification marking them as his own and heirs. As Paul states in Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. With an authority such as only God can claim, Jesus promises the kingdom to those whose faith resembles the hand of an empty beggar. Children bring nothing 
to the table. In a stunning rebuke to the disciples, Jesus shows them that they do not control who comes to the kingdom. He does. How we welcome people into the kingdom of God matters to Jesus. And it should matter to us. In the face of Jesus' bold pronouncement of the nature of those who will enter the kingdom, what do we do with this? How should we respond? What should we remember? First, faith and dependence are necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Those who are lowly, broken, contrite, receive God's grace. We are told that the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. And towards scorners, he is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. We are also told, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just command. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. In the New Testament, Peter writes, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In fact, humility is one of the characteristics of the believer most frequently mentioned in the Bible. We are called to die to ourself. Our self stands in opposition to the kingdom. And ever since that day in the garden long ago, seeing ourselves, serving ourselves, places us in league with Satan. Satan disguises submission to himself under the ruse of personal autonomy. He never asks us to become his servant. Never once did the serpent say to Eve, I want to be your master. The shifting commitment is never from Christ to evil, it's always from Christ to self. And instead of his will, self-interest now rules, and what I want reigns. And that is the essence of sin. Elevating ourselves above God. Receiving the kingdom as a child receives it means that my will must give way to his I must accept my emptiness in the face of his great riches, my, sin, my sinfulness in light of his holiness. He must become greater. I must become less. Secondly, we cannot be gatekeepers of the gospel. It is not ours to determine the terms and condition of someone's salvation. How often... Have we told people that they must clean up their act before they come to Jesus? We saw this attitude with the disciples. They wanted more significant people to come to Jesus. The irony is that the disciples saw themselves as protecting Jesus, preventing distracting nobodies from monopolizing Jesus' time. Yet by rejecting children, they are in fact rejecting him and failing to comprehend the nature and power of the gospel. In effect, they were very poor ambassadors of the kingdom. Let us not forget this gospel truth that many of us have probably sung many times before. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, 
and that thou bidst me to, me to come to thee, Lamb of God, I come, I come. We bring nothing. We have nothing to offer. We can do nothing to affect our own salvation. Salvation comes, then sanctification happens. To expect sanctified behavior prior to salvation is to turn the gospel on its head. As ambassadors of the kingdom, we share the gospel with everyone. If, for God shows no partiality, how then can we be partial with whom we share the gospel? Why is there no partiality? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Rich and poor perish and are condemned in their sin all the same. We declare that to die to self is to live in Christ. Thirdly and related, we rejoice heartily when a lost soul comes to salvation. At the conclusion of Jesus' parable of the lost sheep, he states that, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. We should warmly welcome those who have been adopted into the kingdom. Should we ever find ourselves in the mindset of indignance that someone came to salvation and won't get their just desserts, remember, justice is a truly terrifying prospect. The outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, eternally separated from God is what we're talking about here. We don't want justice. We want mercy. We should want mercy for others. We should rejoice when one receives the kingdom and the mercy that comes with it. We should rejoice that Jesus is mighty and strong to save. Death is strong, Jesus is stronger. The prince of this world is strong, the king of heaven is stronger. Our sin is great, his grace is greater. The king of heaven is stronger. We should rejoice when the sinner becomes a saint when the strong man is plundered, when a godless heathen becomes a faithful child. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for the truth of your word, that to come to you to receive the kingdom means to come as a child, empty, independent, wholly trusting with simple obedience. Father, I pray that we would have that heart in us, that we would die to ourself, that we bring nothing. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for the kingdom that you have made available to us, and that while we did not deserve it, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. As we close here today, Father, I pray that as we leave out, that we would generously share the gospel with a broken world. With whomever we meet, wherever we meet them. Because you have commanded us to do so. 
and that we would rejoice as you rejoice when the lost come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.